Welcome to Creation Conversations with Joe Hubbard and John Mackay. Join us each week as we answer your questions and common objections to the Bible, creation, and Noah's flood. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, looks like we are live, and I got to say, guys, we have an awesome show for everybody today. I am extremely excited, and we've already got a good, lively audience. So here we go. Let's get this party started. It is a blessing to have Joseph Hubbard on here today to discuss topics pertaining to fossils, zoology, paleobiology, paleontology, and more. So we're going to be touching on some awesome topics. It's truly a blessing to have Joseph here with us today, and I want to thank him for giving us his time for this very important show. Um, I also want to thank George for being here, for uh, helping with this uh, presentation, interview, and question and answer. So before I hand it over to George, though, um, I know everybody in the chat is as, as excited as me. We're going to be starting off with a presentation from uh, Joe, followed by a question and answer on the related topic. So please uh, tag me with your questions at Standing for Truth. That way I won't miss it and we'll make sure we have a good Q&A. So anyways, enough for me. I'm going to hand it over to you, Brother George. Um, Thank you again for joining me for this presentation and interview. Would you do the honors of introducing our guest to the audience today, George? And George, you're on mute. There you go. You're good to go. Uh, no problem. Uh, it's it's an honor, actually. Um, uh, first of all, I'd like I'd like to thank Joe and um, Praise and Really Fine Living because we only had like over twelve hours to prepare for this. So that's only due to the fact that uh, we've lost some emails somewhere down the track. But uh, anyway, we're finally here. Uh, so uh, happy New Year, Joseph. Uh, I, I always like to start with a little humour. Now, Joseph, what happened to the man who shoplifted a calendar on New Year's Eve? I'm not entirely sure. I think you'll have to tell me. He got 12 months. Oh, of course. (laughs) Uh, All right. I I have to say, uh, Joseph, I'm thrilled to have have you here today for for this interesting and important presentation. I met up and spoke with uh, John McKay a few weeks ago. And I touted the prospect of uh, having you here on our channel. And after a number of emails, some of which, uh, as I mentioned, uh, were lost. But anyway, we're finally here. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the work you do, you do, mate. I um, I'll give the audience a brief introduction. Uh, You're a very credentialed person. Uh, Joseph, for those that are not aware, has been collecting fossils since the age of six. Uh, I'll let him expand on that a bit later. Uh, A passion which he has continued throughout his life. He has completed degrees, now get a load of some of this, in geology, specialising in paleobiology and zoology, and has completed specialist courses and diplomas in genetics, dinosaurian paleontology, biblical archaeology, British archaeology and mycology. In other words, this is one highly qualified man. Individuals like Joe are the reason why evolution and uniformitarianism have been so completely overturned. You just don't find people like Joe with such well-rounded knowledge in the fields of paleobiology, archaeology, natural, naturalist creation research, animal, 
it just keeps going on. Uh, and of course, he's a book enthusiast. Now, for those that uh, may not know what paleobiology is, uh, and I have to admit I didn't, and I had to look it up. It's a growing comparatively new discipline which combines the methods and findings of the life science that is biology with the methods and findings of the earth science paleontology. Now, he, he, he has over 13 years experience in the field of paleontology and nature work and four years experience in the animal care industry. His studies in zoology led him to work in the animal care industry as a zookeeper for six years before joining creation research full-time as a UK director in 2019. I could never do that, Joe. I, I, I couldn't handle a snake. Oh, I'm dead oh, set scared of snakes. Keep them away now, from me. Now, Joe, Joseph's uh, undertaken uh, a numerous research, has given talks and presentations, and he's led field trips, um, some of which I've actually seen. His, rich, his research finds are often reported in the creation research evidence news and often on the creation researchers Facebook and Instagram. Uh, from um, someone who is considerably older than you, that's me, uh, Joseph, just a small piece of advice. As you begin to scale the heights in years, I will share some wisdom to prepare you, okay? Not I've, no I, I've noticed as I got older, I learn something new every day, but I forget five other things. <laughs> and, and please remember, in a, in a recent study, they found women who carry a little extra weight live longer than men who mention it. Oh, well, take, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> take it from me. Don't go there, Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 this, this, this study is very interesting, actually. In another extensive worldwide study, they actually asked over 10,000 elderly men in 30 different countries. Now, that's a sample size of 300,000. That's, from a statistical analysis point of view, that's a very good sample size. Now, they've, they asked these men why they think men die before women. And the most common answer was because they want to. <laughs> now, now that now that you and everyone is rolling on the floor with laughter, I, I wish enough from Stanley and I. Jo Joseph, seriously, thank you again for joining us today and giving us your time. Please have the floor, and also please correct me on, on anything that we may uh, have gotten wrong, or even or even, se uh, or, or even said uh, anything in terms of introduction you'd like to correct us on. So over to you, uh, Joseph. You, you can roast me later if you like. <laughs> Thank you very much, George. I'm going to see if I can share my screen here um, so I can get up some pretty pictures for you all to have a look at. Uh, there we go. And let's just get it up nice and big for everybody. There we are. Wonderful. Okay, so you can see uh, creation research there. You can see uh, John Mackay is with me there. With uh, He was on the show a little while back. Uh, you can see me. You can see our international director, John Mackay. And in between the two of us, you can see a dead head more specifically a Neanderthal skull. Um, and you also see our website at the bottom there, creationresearch.net, with Q&A. Uh, we've already mentioned we're going to have a Q&A session uh, later on this evening, but if you aren't brave enough to ask a question or if you don't think of a question that you suddenly remember in the middle of the night, uh, you can go to creationresearch.net, click on Q&A, and we've got a whole host 
of questions and answers on there. Uh, and if they're not on there, then uh, you can certainly submit one so that we can answer it for you. And we give you a, a little bit more, a little bit deeper explanation. Um, and George did a fantastic job of sort of introducing who I am and what I do. I'm the director of Creation Research UK, and I speak all over the world uh, at wonderful places. This was a school a little while back, which we were speaking on snakes. You can sort of see a snake in the picture that I'm using behind me there. Um, you see, my background, my main academic background is in, as was already been mentioned, paleobiology. So we we look at fossils and we try and match them up to living things we use our knowledge of living things to actually help us interpret the past and specifically what we're supposed to be able to do is a sort of another subdivision which is paleoecology which is actually reconstructing ecosystems in the rocks so you dig up your rocks you dig up your fossils uh, and you're supposed to be able to work out well this was a marine environment because it's got marine fossils in it or this was a tropical land environment because it's got tropical land plants on it right now as we go for further forward into the presentation you'll see that uh, there's a bit of a problem with that as we delve into the realms of Noah's flood and fossils and so on and so forth but uh, the reason why I consider myself in a fairly privileged position and the Lord has been so good to me over the years is because uh, as mentioned I worked as a zookeeper for six years in the animal care industry uh, so you get a real good hands-on experience with how the living creatures worked and my work as a zookeeper also they ended up funding me to go and do an academic qualification a diploma in um, zoology for specifically for zookeepers so a nice sort of uh, rounded double-barreled academic background as well as the various other sort of uh, sort of interesting things that I've, I've gone off and done in the past um, but the two main ones are zoology and paleobiology we love to take people on field trips. As already mentioned, we love to take people to actually go and get hands-on uh, evidence, get hands-on information, get hands-on research, and actually take people out to show them the truth. Um, plus, we do our own research uh, sort of without the public. You can see here, I'm on the Isle of Wight here. This was um, a couple of years ago now. Uh, and you can see I'm excavating a dinosaur skull there, a back of a dinosaur skull some marvellous things that God has actually uh, enabled us to go and find and allowed us to find and dig up and do some research. We often take cameras around with us as we travel and we will end up filming our research projects. Um, this is a brand new project which we've only just finished today, um, so praise the Lord for that. Land of fire and ice, dealing with that tricky controversial subject of climate change. You see, I recently got married a few months back and we decided to go to Iceland for a honeymoon because it was the only sort of country you could get into at the time without all the COVID restrictions and so on and so forth. Um, my, well, I say my wife thought it was a honeymoon. Um, I, end, I ended up having a sneaky agenda to wanting to go there because I wanted to actually document the history of climate. And we had a fantastic time, both on our honeymoon and actually filming and clambering up glaciers and doing some wonderful exploring. Um, but it gives you a very interesting perspective on climate change and more particularly important, um, an important uh, biblical view of climate change and how that fits into the world around us. So you can find out more about that project again on creationresearch.net. We also have the museums project. Um, John Mackay has been traveling and entering Europe and the UK for the last 30 odd years. Uh, that's 30 odd years of research. That's 30 odd years of fossils um, in our collections, which we've recently sort of uh, uh, collated together. I myself have been collecting fossils from the age of six. 
um, as uh, we've already mentioned. So uh, we've got a lot of fossils, not just fossils, though, but also artifacts, which include things like uh, archaeological artifacts, geological exhibits, natural history, so stuffed animals and so on and so forth, uh, which we're currently trying to get into a museum set up, including fossils like this. Um, this was one of our donations a few years back. Can you see big fish? Can you see little fish? Can you see how little fish is coming out of big fish's mouth? Well, let's delve into this uh, sort of realm of geology and specifically dealing with fossils and paleobiology and how does this all relate in a biblical fashion. Um, let's start by going to one of the perhaps the most famous or what certainly one of the most famous uh, natural history museums in the world, the Natural History Museum of London, uh, also one of the oldest in the world as well designed by Sir Richard Owen to look like a cathedral. You can see it's standing in all its glory there. It looks very sort of cathedral or church-like. Um, that's because it was sort of based off of a cathedral. It was designed, Richard, Sir Richard Owen, who founded it, designed it to be a display place of God's creation, including dinosaurs, which he believed, by the way, were the monsters that God made. However, if you go into these natural history museums today, you don't see uh, Sir Richard Owen very prominently anymore. You see Charles Darwin and you see lots and lots of fossils, um, some spectacularly preserved fossils, some absolutely marvellous fossils from all over the world. And this is what they teach you in these museums. Fossilization, that is turning a creature into a fossil, is a really slow process. Uh, you see this in museums all over the world. Fossilization, according to these museums, requires a very slow process. All right, well, let's uh, delve in a little bit deeper then. Um, this is a, on a museum plaque here, actually. Um, uh, it's uh, sort of been put, it's taken straight from a museum plaque. We've changed it slightly to get around copyright, but this is what they teach you in these museums. How to get a fossil fish. Step one, a fish dies and sinks to the bottom of the lake. Step two, the fish rots and only the bones are left, and so the fish is then covered with mud. Step three, millions of years pass and the mud turns to rock. Over time, the bone matter is completely changed into a mineral matter, and the fish is now a fossil. A simple three-step plan to uh, actually getting a fish fossil, according to the museum. And uh, the point is, according to the museums, fish fossils are supposed to take millions of years to actually form. Millions of years for that mud to turn to rock. All right, well, let's uh, have a Bible verse. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Uh, I love this Bible verse because it could so easily fit in a science textbook. This is what we are supposed to do as scientists. We have an idea, uh, we have an observation, we formulate an opinion about it, and then we go and test it. If it holds up to the evidence, you hang on to it and you use it as a building block to get to the next step. If it doesn't hold up to the evidence, then you throw it out as no good. Of course, the best thing about this Bible verse is that it isn't in a science textbook. It is actually in the Bible. Uh, you see, it's a commandment um, that God has told us as Christians that we ought to be doing this. Testing all things, hold fast to what is good. So let's do some testing. Let's take you to the Genesis Museum of Creation Research. That's our museum. We're now setting up in Shropshire in the UK. Let's introduce you once again to our fish fossil. 
Now, I first found out about this fish fossil. There's been a few examples of them around the world. This particular one I found out uh, when I was in a fossil shop down in uh, Charmouth, a very famous shop, uh, with this wonderful fossil on display, locked up behind cabinets. And I said, oh, this is marvellous. Can I take some photographs of it, please, so I can, you know, use it in my presentations? And he said, yes, absolutely. And so as I travelled around and I was using this in my presentations, um, one of the people... Uh, at the presentation, a long-time supporter came up and said, hey, I want to uh, try and raise the funds to buy this fossil for you if it's still available. Now, this was like six years down the line from when I first saw the fossil, so I had no idea whether it'd still be there, um, but I didn't want to discourage him. Like, yeah, absolutely, go for it. And sure enough, a couple of months later, he knocked on the door and there was the fish fossil um, ready for me to have and take and put in our museum. It's a wonderful fossil, um, you can get some spectacular detail on it, on big fish and on little fish. And you notice what I've put there? Fossil rocks are fast rocks. You see, this is a concept that is really going to sort of, uh, what this evening is really going to centre around, is that point that fossil rocks have to be fast rocks. There's no other way to actually get a fossil. Um, what am I talking about? Well, when I first found this fossil and took photographs of it, when I initially uh, uh, began to um, use it in my presentations, I thought that this was a fossil of a big fish who was halfway through eating his lunch. Uh, and he'd been buried so quickly that he hadn't even had time to finish his lunch. That's what I thought. That's what's promoted in many of the uh, creationist museums around the world that um, have similar exhibits like this or in books and magazines. But um, test all things. Let's dig in a little bit closer. Can you see little fish? And you can see where my arrows, my red arrows, are pointing to. Um, can you see the little indentations of where... Ah, hang on a minute. Little fish is not in the process of being eaten. Little fish has already been eaten. You can see the indentations, the teeth marks, from where big fish has munch, 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 gobbled him down. And then something has so suddenly and so violently caught up big fish and squashed him that little fish has gone bloop and it's come out of his mouth. This is uh, a fish which is currently vomiting a recently eaten meal. Ah, <clears throat> fast rocks? Yeah, it's been buried so quickly with such a huge amount of force that it's literally forced the contents out of its stomach. And I don't know if you can see it there. Let's see if I can get a little um, uh, laser pointer on here. Um, there we go. If I show you down here, this sort of little uh, straight thing here, this is actually another small fish inside. That's part of the backbone. Another small fish, which is already inside the uh, creature's mouth. This isn't the only example. This is one of our big displays that we have in Australia in our big collection. Um, you see all the fish there? You see the fish up in the top corner? Let's blow him up a little bit. Can you see big fish? Can you see little fish? Can you see little fish coming out of big fish's mouth? You see, this is exactly the same type of fossil as we have in the UK. The only difference is little fish is a little bit more digested. Hey, this is a fossil fish vomit. Um, Something has caught this fish up so quickly and so suddenly and so violently, it's forced the contents of his stomach out into the surrounding area. Now, if you keep fish or if you um, keep any sort of uh, pets or whatever, one thing you know is that vomit doesn't hang around very long. Uh, and also, 
neither does uh, like fecal, you know, feces, you know, poo, fish poo, it disintegrates when it comes out. Vomit, when fish vomit, it just disintegrates into the uh, disperses into the sea around it. If you want to actually get something trapped like this, you need to bury that creature, you need to bury that fish mixed into the sediment with such violence and such force that it forces the vomit out, but the vomit can't actually go anywhere. And so you end up having a fossil fish vomiting. All right, let's go back to step one of that three-step plan. Um, can you remember what it was according to the museums? How do you get a fossil fish? Step one, the fish dies and sinks to the bottom of the lake. Well, you've got your first problem there because here's a dead fish. It's not sunk to the bottom in the slightest. It's floating on the top. Now, see, this is because fossil fish, um, uh, or fish, sorry, rather, uh, actually have something called a swim bladder or a... Um, air bladder um or most fish do anyway and you see when they're swimming along and they die uh this swim bladder will bloat they will fill up with gas and they will float because the swim bladder is actually there to help them with buoyancy if they fill it up they begin to float if they let it out they sink perfect if you're alive if you're dead you don't have any you know control over it or power over it so most fish when they die will bloat they'll float um and then very very quickly they will actually become destroyed, stood away, nothing left. Hey, if you buried that fish in that state on the screen now, uh, would you get a beautifully preserved fossil with all the fins and everything, just like our fossil fish in the UK? No, you wouldn't. Um, if you want to fossilize a fish with that level of detail, you need to bury it very quickly indeed. Okay, once again, a reminder test all things, hold fast to what is good. Because you see, as we went around, we started getting some critiques. I've been using this argument for a long time, right? And uh, I started getting some critiques. The critiques were that under some conditions, fish can sink and stay on the sea floor. Okay, and I looked it up, and they're right. Under some conditions, fish can sink and stay on the seafloor. Um, and they do this for two reasons. The first one is some fish don't actually have a swim bladder. Sharks are a classic example of this. Um, sharks just sink to the bottom of the floor uh, when they die. Also, in some conditions, if the water is very, very cold, the uh, swim bladder or the uh, air bladder actually contracts. It doesn't bloat at all. It contracts, it goes the opposite, and the fish will sink. Of course, the critiques went on to say, if fish can sink and stay on the seafloor, therefore the fish that sink to the floor can become fossilised, therefore you can get fish fossils without a flood and or catastrophic burial. That was the argument that was used. All right, remember, test all things, um, hold fast to that which is good. Fish can sink to the seafloor under some conditions, but you uh, still have to get past one final hurdle. Let me introduce you to a small fungus. This is a fungus. You see the fish eggs there? It's common uh, in aquariums. These are fish eggs that it's eating. You see, I once uh, was given this presentation and I was talking through this problem and I had a guy come up to me afterwards and said, you know what, you're absolutely right, but this may help you. I'm actually a fish farmer. I uh, farm fish for commercially, you know, for, for, for eating. And he said, whenever we have a fish die, there is a race against time to get that fish out of it, uh, out of the tank, before it actually begins to rot. He said, and this is the reason why, when my fish die, they're in cold water tanks, so they start to sink. 
they will sink and settle on the sea floor, uh, on the tank floor. And then, uh, no matter what we try and pump into the uh, into the tank, it doesn't seem to kill it. This fungus will come up, will actually anchor itself onto the fish. So it will attach the fish to the sea floor, anchored it in place, and then within a matter of hours, it will actually destroy that fish uh, beyond recognition. And we have to get into the tank and get rid of that rotting fish before it contaminates the rest of the tank. And we do a bit of research, remember testing all things, do a little bit of uh, digging, and you find that this fish is actually found all throughout the world, um, or this fungus rather, sorry, is found all throughout the world in various different forms, whether it's in freshwater streams, saltwater streams, or elsewhere. You see, this fungus destroys the fish very, very quickly. The point, would you get a fish fossil slowly even if the fish sank to the bottom of the sea and stayed there? Answer, absolutely not. The fish would be destroyed long before it could be fossilised. You see, if you want to make a uh, fossil fish, um, you actually need to have three things in place. You need it to be buried extremely quickly, you need it to be buried very deeply, and you need it to be buried without the presence of oxygen. If you do not have those three things, you will never get a fossil. Our point, it's got nothing to do with time, but everything to do with the process. Um, get the process right, you get a quick fossil. Get the process wrong, it's not just a case of get the process wrong, it takes millions of years to make a fossil, because if you get the process wrong and you add time into the equation, then time is going to destroy your creature long before you have a chance to actually turn it into a fossil. Nothing to do with time, everything to do with a process. You can find out more about our fossils in Tights, Mites and Fossil Fights. I co-authored this book with John Mackay. You may well have mentioned it. Um, if you go to creationresearch.net and click on shop, we've got shops in the USA and the UK and Australia and New Zealand. So you can uh, actually uh, buy this fossil book as well as many other evidences to show that the Earth is young. You can also find out more about our uh, museums project. We're just in the process. You can see Creation Research Center. Yes, I'm sorry to our USA uh, uh, listeners in. Um, we spell center slightly differently over here in the UK. So creationresearchcenter.com. Uh, we are going to start a project where we are putting up hopefully one or two a day a new artifact, a new fossil, a new exhibit onto our website. The website's still under construction at the moment, uh, but we're going to try and get a new thing on there every day so you can start to see our catalogue of absolutely marvellous fossils uh, and artifacts and things that God has enabled us to be able to get over the years. You can find out more about the UK ministry at creationresearch.net or creationresearchuk.com. You can also find out about some fabulous fossil books for kids, like what happened to the dinosaurs, um, tights, mites and fossil fights, your questions about creation answered, who made all the dinosaurs, stuff for adults and kids alike, which really delves into that question of um, how do we know that the Bible is true from the very beginning? Here's another example, because we're, we're dealing with fossils here. We're also dealing with Noah's flood. And uh, what has that got to do with paleobiology? What has that got to do with fossils? Well, this is the UK. Um, you can see uh, Scotland at the top, England uh, down the bottom, Wales is over to the right, and the little island, um, oh sorry, Wales is over to the left, sorry. Uh, and you can see the little island to the left as well is uh, Ireland. Let's uh, take you a little bit closer because I'm going to introduce you to um, 
a research project of mine, which has uh, basically been a lifelong obsession with this place. This is Hans Stanton. Hans Stanton is, uh, well, let me show you exactly where it is. Uh, there's the UK again. England is the highlighted place. Over in the little uh, red patch is Norfolk. That's where I originally hail from. Let's take you into Norfolk. There's, uh, over there is West Norfolk. There's West Norfolk blown up. And Hans Stanton is just about there. I mean, England isn't the biggest of countries in the world, um, and Hunstanton is just a tiny little portion of that country. What I'm going to try and do is explain to you a bit about fossils and the flood with Hunstanton, and then match it up to the world, so you can get a bigger perspective. All right, Hunstanton, um, what's so fascinating about it? Well, let's get behind the geology. Uh, you can see it's got some wonderful different colours there, three different colours. At the bottom you have the carstone, uh, that sort of uh, mottled brown um, rock there, it's a sandstone. And in the middle you have the wonderful striking red Hunstanton formation, that's a chalk, a red chalk. And at the top you have the Ferroby chalk formation, which is your bog standard white chalk, right? Uh, the Hunstanton formation and the Ferroby formation are full of fossils. Okay, let's get in a bit deeper. What are the supposed dates? Well, according to secular evolution, um, the carstone at the bottom is 109 million years. The Ferroby chalk formation at the top is 99 million years, and the red chalk in between the two of them is 101 million years, supposedly. Okay, remember our Bible verse earlier from 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Let's actually do some testing on Hunstanton here, because uh, you can actually take this principle, even though Hunstanton is a tiny, excuse me, a, a tiny, tiny little uh, segment of the world, you can take this principle and apply it just about anywhere. We are actually going to test those dates. Well, you find lots of fossils inside Hunstanton. You can see this wonderful fossil we dug up a few, uh, a few years back now. Um, you see the curly whirly ammonite? in the middle picture, the big picture, the big curly-whirly fossil, and sitting on top of that curly-whirly ammonite uh, is a shark's tooth pressed into the ammonite. And then to the right-hand side of the ammonite, you can see a sea urchin. You can also see I've labelled the strata. Strata is layers, by the way. It's a technical geologist's term. You see the layers. Can you see how the sea urchin is actually sitting up through the layers? It's not sitting flat on the bottom at all. Now, this is very important as we delve into this, so uh, bear that in mind. Um, there's the uh, sea urchin there. It's sitting up sideways. It's on its side. It's not lying flat. You see, one thing that... Remember what my thing was? Uh, I was supposed to study paleobiology. Paleobiology is the study of living things in the fossil record, or certainly matching them up to ecosystems. Now, paleobiology teaches that creatures live creatures die, and creatures get buried in the same place. Well, this isn't buried how it was living. It's been turned on its side. Uh, and you see the little green thing I've put on the top there? That's a modern-day sea urchin that I picked up on the beach. Um, hasn't changed one bit. I suppose 99 million years old, and it's still a sea urchin. So it hasn't changed in that 99 million years. In fact, it's been doing uh, exactly what God told it to do, which is reproduce after its own kind. Of course, that begs the question, if it's gone for 99 million years um, without changing one bit, why does it have to be 99 million years old? Huh. Interesting. Let's delve a bit deeper. 
introduce you to another fossil, this time from the red chalk, that Hunstanton formation. Um, this is a brachiopod, by the way. It's about two inches tall for our American, uh, uh, our American viewers. For UK, that's about five centimetres tall. Uh, that's what it looks like today. There's a living example on the right-hand side there, and on the left-hand side, you can see a diagram which shows you how this is supposed to sit up in the in in the real world. Um, you can actually look if we go back a little bit. Can you see? I'll get my laser pointer out. One second, um, if I can find my mouse. There we are. You see this little sort of hole at the top here. They all have this. This is where a little tube attaches. Um, there's the tube just down there. You can see it attaches it to the bottom of the sea floor. That's this bit over here. And it sits upright and it can open and shut the two halves of the shell. Now, this way that we had this uh, brachiopod laid out is exactly how we find them in the rocks. In other words, they didn't live there and die there and get buried there because this brachiopod is actually turned upside down on its back. Um, interesting what you can actually find when you dig these fossils up. They're all like this, by the way. There's a brachiopod, and uh, there's another one. Can you see how it's sitting up through the rock? Can you see how the layers, there's the layers over here, uh, and how it's sitting up through the layers? Interesting. All right, let's go back to the dates. 109 million years supposedly at the bottom, 99 million years at the top. How would you challenge this? Well, 109 minus 99 equals 10 million years. In other words, according to those dates, it took 10 million years to form, to lay down, to deposit Hunstanton cliffs, right? 10 million years to lay down Hunstanton cliffs if the dates are accurate. If the dates are correct, it took 10 million years to create these. So uh, how tall are they? Well, the cliffs there are about 20 meters or 65 feet. All right, well, I'm going to do a math uh, equation now, and I uh, I apologize to um, our American friends. We're going to use metric for it because it's a lot easier to get your head around it. Um, 109 million years at the bottom, 99 million years at the top. That means that it took 10 million years to lay down 20 meters of sediment if the dates are correct. So how do we test them? Well, it's simple. You take 20,000 millimeters, which, by the way, is the same as 20 meters. 20 meters is 20,000 millimeters. So it took 10 million years to lay down 20,000 millimeters. So you simply divide the height of the cliff by the time that it supposedly took to form it, according to the dates, and you get 0.002 millimeters per year or 0.00007 inches per year. I mean, that's a tiny amount. Can you put your fingers that close together? No. Okay. Ask yourself this question then. Um, if these dates are accurate, that means that it took 14,285 years to deposit one inch of sediment or 28,000 years to bury the brachiopod. Huh. Let me ask you another question. Um, there's the brachiopod there. Uh, it would have taken about, uh, well, in excess of 28 million years to actually just bury that brachiopod, let alone fossilize it, would you ever um, get a fossil if it really took that length of time? No, you wouldn't, not in the slightest. That fossil, that creature would be destroyed long before. I mean, 28,000 years? That's a ridiculous length of time just to bury the brachiopod. 
And the beauty of this equation is that all we've done, we've put two things in, two pieces of data. One of them is an absolute piece of data. That's the height of the cliffs. The other one is a, you could call theoretical piece of data. It's the supposed ages uh, that it took, the supposed time that it took to lay these cliffs down. And you get a ludicrous result. The point, it's got nothing to do with time, but everything to do with a process. Uh, if you want to fossilize these things, you need to bury them very, very quickly. Of course, again, you get lots of critiques as you go around. Um, you see, chalk is a limestone. Limestone is supposed to deposit in shallow marine environments. It's supposed to take a very long time to form. And the critique was, well, deposition would not actually be constant when it was you see, what we've done, we've taken the date at the bottom, the date at the top, we've worked out how long it supposedly took to form according to the date and divided it to get an equal measurement. And the argument is, well, that doesn't actually work because deposition may have sped up, it may have slowed down, it could be all over the place. Well, it's a valid critique, but it doesn't actually work. You see, what you then have to do is say, well, what does the evidence indicate about deposition? What does the evidence from the fossils actually show us about how these uh, fossils actually formed? Delve in a bit deeper, uh, you find that Hans Stanton has got a whole wealth of evidence. Fossils there were buried rapidly, there's no doubt about it. Just the simple presence of a fossil there shows that it was buried very rapidly. You find these rapid fossils buried all throughout the deposits. So the next question is, do you find evidence of currents and flow. Again, remember what I was taught in university as a paleobiologist. You're supposed to dig up fossils and reconstruct an ecosystem. The idea is that the creatures lived, died, and were buried in the same environment. So what evidence is there? Is there any evidence that these creatures did not live, die, and bury there? Is there any evidence that these creatures were swept into position? Well, yes, there is. Um, I wrote this paper a few years back now in 2017 entitled the, uh, or titled rather, The Evidence of Transportation and Rapid Burial in the Fossils of Hans Stanton. It was a three-month research project into Hans Stanton, specifically looking for evidence of transportation. Transportation in fossil terms means evidence of fast-flowing currents which moved the fossils into position with a slurry of sediment and buried them in a transported state, as opposed to living, dying and bury, being buried in the same location. We looked for evidence of transportation during both the formation of the Hunstanton and Ferriby formations, as well as while those fossils were being buried. What did we find? 93% of fossils showed transportation. I mean, I used the example earlier of the uh, brachiopod that was sitting upright in the layers. That's evidence of transportation. It didn't live and die and bury there. It was whipped up, turned upside down and buried like that. Um, hmm, evidence of transportation. Uh, Bellumnites, the sort of elongated bullet-shaped creatures, all pointing in the same direction. Ah, that's evidence of transportation. Fast-flowing water. Therefore, when these fossils were formed in water, uh, sorry, when these fossils were formed, the water was flowing in one direction. Um, it was being, these fossils were being caught up in a slurry of sediment before being buried very rapidly and then fossilized. Ah, you see, we actually have documented a lot about Hans Stanton uh, and a lot about the work that we do in the Rocks Cry Out project. You can see our team there. We travel around the UK filming uh, documentaries, filming short little pieces of evidence uh, about 
these locations uh, and putting them up for free on our Creation Research YouTube channel that you can actually watch so you can get a to, you can get to grips with some of the geology. And just like Hunstanton, which is a tiny little segment of the Earth's, uh, you know, the Earth's surface, you can take that process, that principle behind it, and actually bring it forward to find evidence and use that evidence around the world. So you can also buy the books online, uh, which goes into a lot more detail, including our famous Jurassic Coast about um, Mary Anning, uh, Hunstanton goes a lot more into detail about these fossils that you can actually find evidence for them in the rocks, including that research paper which I published. And uh, we've got a special deal on Creation Research Store at the moment, so do check that out. But let's start to sort of wrap this all together as we sort of finish this. Let's wrap it all together and give you that evidence of a worldwide flood. Because Hunstanton is a tiny little location, so let's use those same principles, but put it on a much bigger scale. Let's take you to Cheddar Gorge in the UK. I love Cheddar Gorge. It's sort of our equivalent in the UK or the closest thing in the UK we have to the Grand Canyon. Um, it is pretty marvellous. Uh, Cheddar Gorge is uh, its a lot smaller, though, by the way. Um, it's a wonderful place. Lots of great fossils, lots of great limestone, uh, limestone similar to chalk. This is actually Carboniferous Limestone. Don't get hung up on the names, by the way. Uh, carboniferous literally means it's full of carbon. This is where coal comes from. Oh, again, I have to remember we have people all around the world viewing this, so let me give it its American name. You see, most of the original geologists were British, and of course the British geologists gave them their own name, and the, the Americans couldn't possibly use the British names for it. So rather than Carboniferous, they named them Pennsylvanian and Mississippian rocks. Um, Pennsylvanian rocks, the rocks that were first studied by the Americans in Pennsylvania. Mississippian, ones that were studied in Mississippi. You see, names, these big, long, complicated technical names, um, they uh, have nothing to do with millions of years in evolution, but everything to do with where they were first studied or what they're actually made up of. So let's take you to uh, Cheddar Gorge. Let's dig up some fossils. Um, let's see what we can find. You see all those little white flecks that you see on the rock behind me? Um, they're all fossils. Fossils like this. A brachiopod. Ah, just like the brachiopods in Hunstanton. Wonderful fossils, by the way. Um, Marvellous brachiopod shells. Great stuff that you can find all throughout Cheddar Gorge. Well, there's a brachiopod shell there. Keep a good look at it because it's important to remember. Because uh, what you actually find is all these brachiopod shells are all buried together, uh, buried in water. They're marine. Uh, they've all been washed together which equals a flood. You see, limestone is a water-based sediment, so it was buried in a flood. It was buried by water. Well, let's take you to Australia, uh, Georgia's home country, um, and you can see this is uh, a plaque at a very famous set of caves in New South Wales. It says, this plaque celebrates the sister cave relationship between Cheddar Show Caves and Janolan Caves, New South Wales, Australia. You see, Cheddar Gorge has many caves running through them, uh, Cheddar, um, you know, Goff's Cave and all sorts of marvellous stuff, and it's actually twinned with Janolan Caves. Okay, let's have a little dig around Janolan Caves then, um, in Australia. It's sort of located around the Blue Mountains in Australia. Uh, I visited here a few years back, there's another much, much bigger uh, ca canyon than Cheddar Gorge, and there's the caves behind me. 
I visited here in 2018 during a creation research trip to Australia. Um, guess what rock it is? <clears throat> Carboniferous limestone. The same Carboniferous limestone that you find over in England. In fact, you find it all the way through Europe and Asia, running down to Australia. It's the same limestone. It's the same deposit. It's the same rock formation. Because look, there's the brachiopod shells. Same shells, same formation, same rock, same layers. Hey, this formation uh, is nearly 16,000 kilometers across. That is a really big flood. Hmm. Okay, well, let's use another example. Um, Carthage in Tennessee, uh, a USA example. Can you see the uh, rock layers there in the, in the sort of roadside cut through? What is this rock type? This is Ordovician limestone. Ordovician, okay, it's a different type of uh, rock um, to, it's a very similar rock, but it's a slightly different type of rock to the uh, Carboniferous limestone. This is Ordovician limestone. Ordovician, well, in Wales, in the, in the United Kingdom, where, you know, we're split into four countries over in the West, there's Wales. In Wales, uh, there used to live a lot of Celtic tribes many many years ago before the Romans invaded um, Celtic tribes these Celtic tribes one of which were named the Ordovici by the way this tribe is now extinct it no longer is alive this tribe of people when the geologists first started digging up fossils in South Wales um, they actually came across some other extinct creatures so they decided to name the rocks that these extinct creatures came from called trilobites after the tribe of extinct people that used to live there, uh, the Celtic people, and they named them the Ordovician tri uh, the Ordovician rocks after the Ordovici tribe. <clears throat> Ordovician limestone from Carthage in the USA. This Ordovician limestone, by the way, is found all throughout the USA. Uh, and guess what's in it? Fossils! Brachiopod shells. Brachiopod fossils. Interesting. More brachiopod fossils and a wonderful crinoid fossil mess. Um, look at all those fossils crammed together. By the way, a big fossil mess equals a flood, where currents have come through and ripped it up and tossed it about and dumped it down in a slurry of rock sediment. The point, it's got nothing to do with time, everything to do with the process. But I've said that before. All right, well, let's go back to the UK and make that same match that we did for Cheddar Gorge and Janolan Caves. Um, this is the Lake District. Very beautiful place, very famous place. Hey, look, it's Ordovician limestone. The same Ordovician limestone that was in the USA, um, in Carthage. Go inside some of our caves, wonderful waterfalls in there, wonderful limestone formations there as well. And guess what? Brachiopod shells. The same brachiopod shells that were in Carthage in Tennessee and are found all throughout the USA. Brecon beacons in Wales. Guess what? Ordovician limestone with trilobites in it. They're the trilobites um, that had to do with the story of how the Ordovician rocks were named Ordovician. And there's another trilobite fossil from Carthage in the USA. Hey, this one is 6,460 mile uh, kilometers apart or 4,000 miles apart. That's a really big flood. But guess what? That is a really, really big flood. The same type of formation, the same water-based sediment, the same fossils, the same flood deposit 
covering most of the Earth's surface. Hey, that's a really big flood deposit. You see, the evidence is there when you actually look. You just need to know what to look for. And again, it's got nothing to do with time, everything to do with the process. So what can we actually find out from these rocks? The stuff that's in Carthage, Tennessee, the White Cliffs of Dover, the Ordovician limestone, all this stuff that you find, the limestone formations around the world. Um, well, there's one thing, important thing, and it really goes to show the uh, not time uh, but process point. Inside all of these caves, both in uh, the USA, in Janolan Caves, in Cheddar Gorge, you see these wonderful stalactite and stalagmite formations. Uh, again, supposedly take hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to form, because it's apparently such a slow process. Um, okay, test all things, hold fast to what is good, let's do some testing, let's actually find out how long it really takes to make these stalactites and stalagmites, so let's take you to my local village, this is the next village along from where I live, in Shropshire, Chirk is uh, just inside Wales, and it has a canal tunnel in it, you know the old English canals? All right, well, let's take you inside. Um, what's growing from the ceiling? Stalactites and stalagmites. Ah, well, this tunnel is just a couple of hundred years old, yet there's stalactites growing from it. There's fabulous formations all down the sides of it. You can actually uh, match them up with real ones in caves. Exactly the same. No difference in the slightest. Marvellous veils of this... Uh, um, you know, uh, they're called um, splenotherms or, you know, stalactites or stalagmites. Um, beautiful stuff inside a very young canal tunnel. Okay, get up nice and close. Can you see the beautiful uh, stalactite? You can catch the dripping water from it. You see, we've had critiques to say that these uh, stalactites growing inside the tunnel aren't the same as the ones in caves because their pH measurement is different you know the how alkaline or how uh, acidic something is well you can test it they match up exactly the same with caves it's exactly the same no difference at all hey this happened in just a few hundred years inside church canal tunnel it doesn't take millions of years in the slightest hey you can actually find this evidence all around the world and it makes the point that it doesn't take millions of years to actually form these it's got everything to do with a process. You can actually watch our documentary of Chert Canal Tunnel for free on the rockscryout.co.uk or our Creation Research YouTube channel. I recommend you go and find out it and explore and find some evidences. So much that we could cover in just this short little segment that we're never going to get through it all. So do find out more on creationresearch.net or creationresearchcenter.com um, and actually find the truth and the true story of the world in light of the Bible. My final point, again, if you want to make a fossil, if you want to make a worldwide deposit, if you want to make any rock formation at all, it's got nothing to do with time, but everything to do with the process. Time is your biggest enemy when it comes to this kind of stuff. Well, that's the end of my slideshow, so I'm going to stop sharing and see if we can come back uh, onto the presentation. 
Yes. Um, I, I got to say, Indiana Joe, that was an amazing presentation. And I am already, I could probably speak for George when I say this, I'm already excited to watch it again to take more notes because the chat was very lively. We've got a ton of good comments, questions. Marvelous. It, it, it really reminds me, Joe, of Second Peter 3, where the scoffers are willingly ignorant of all this undeniable and overwhelming is essentially evidence you know that points to the global flood the world that then was being overflowed with water perished so and also one thing i kept thinking is it was your presentation was so detailed and informative that you answered and essentially refuted many of the best critics arguments and questions anyways i mean you touched on so many good topics so i wanted to make those comments before we got into any specific questions uh, great presentation yep. joe Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, George, I don't want to hog the mic. So before um, I ask any specific questions, did you have any comments to make over the presentation, George? Or maybe you had a question you wanted to first ask? Yes, thank you. Um, I've, I've watched uh, uh, most of those uh, videos you um, referenced, uh, Joe. Uh, I'm an avid uh, subscriber of Creation Research uh, YouTube. Uh, one one observation on your photos is the clear boundary between the layers. Most people don't yeah. realize that that's that's evidence in itself of quick quick layering rather than millions of years. Otherwise, you'd yeah. see erosion and so soil deposition, etc. Absolutely. But but as as an engineer, I've done numerous structural inspections on bridges, and I've even seen stalactites on bridge under bridges. Mm -hmm. And those bridges no. weren't there for millions of years. No. No. But but no. Uh, hey, this is a specific question on limestone formation. Mm -hmm. there, there are critics, and some of them are in the chat at the moment, who claim that um, uh, this could not have been laid in turbulent water flow. Can mm -hmm. you provide an explanation for where all the limestone came from and how it was laid? I believe John McKay... Uh, I think in our previous um, YouTube uh, presentation, as well as some conversations I had with him uh, at his uh, house, uh, mentioned limestone is really a chemical process. Yeah. So there's two there's two things to comment on it. The first one is uh, where do we get the idea from that it's a uh, shallow marine based sediment? Um, the other one is what is a different or alternative explanation to how this limestone actually formed, right? So the first thing you have to look at is, well, we get our idea of a shallow marine carbonate sort of uh, calciferous ooze, as it's called beautifully, um, from modern deposits, right? We go out and we look, we find in the real world some of these uh, sort of uh, chalky deposits at the bottom of shallow seas, which are slowly accumulating small things called coccolithophores. Coccolithophores are the sort of shells off of tiny little plankton, which they fall off, eventually clump together, sink down to the bottom of the seafloor, and begin to form this ooze. Now, this ooze builds up, and it's... Uh, what is claimed to end up producing the limestone deposits. So it's forming around us today, right? Uh, but the argument is it happens so incredibly slowly that, uh, and it really does form at the rates that we, or, you know, uh, very, very slow rates, like one inch per thousand years or whatever. It forms at extremely slow rates. And they say, well, therefore chalk and limestone, which has its base in this sort of uh, ooze that we see forming today, must have taken millions of years to form. Well, 
there's a very simple way of disproving that and showing that you can't actually correlate the two, and that is to ask this. Number one, how many fossils are there buried in this uh, califerous ooze or this modern-day limestone or chalk? The answer, absolutely none, because it is not being laid down fast enough to produce fossils. Um, number two, are there any creatures being trapped in it that are not being destroyed pretty quickly? The answer, no, it happens very, very quickly. The creatures, anything that lives around it uh, just gets destroyed and dies. Okay, question three, um, is the uh, ooze that is being formed today in a pure form? Because you see, when we go to the White Cliffs of Dover, it is pure chalk. There's no contamination. There's no sediment or muck or, you know, rotting stuff caught up in it. It's brilliantly preserved and it's pure. Well, no, in modern day ooze uh, scenarios, uh, it's full of sediment and sand and fish poo and scales and all sorts of gross gunge, right? Now, if you want to argue that the present is the key to the past, which is, by the way, where the whole idea of millions of years actually came from, but that's a completely different uh, topic. Charles Lyell, who promoted the idea that the present is the key to the past, that we have to use modern day observations to explain past geological events. Well, that's how you get to the assumption that chalk has to form slowly and limestone has to form slowly. You go and look at modern day deposits and you see that they're forming slowly today. Therefore, that's how it always happened. Of course, the problem is you can't actually compare the two because they are so different. Because one forming today doesn't have fossils. It doesn't have even have fossils forming. Fossils get destroyed or creatures get destroyed as soon as they fall in. It's thoroughly contaminated with muck and gunge and ooze and, you know, disgusting stuff. Whereas when you go and look at the, uh, you know, the rock, the limestone, the chalk, they're majority pure. They are full of fossils. They're all full of fossils which are pointing the same way, which indicates turbidity currents and flow. They are full of fossils which are turned upside down and are uh, lying on their back, which uh, shows that they've been transported. They're not in a life position. So, Clearly, something doesn't match up between what we observe today and what we actually see in the rock record, right? Now, you can't just ignore the fossils and say, well, we know that limestone is a slow, gradual deposition, therefore, that's how it must have happened, right? There needs to be an alternative explanation. There needs to be a way of actually addressing how you can actually get these rock deposits full of fossils. And by the way, two inches is a pretty small fossil compared to some of the things you can dig about the chalk cliffs. I mean, I've seen ammonite fossils, the curly-whirly ones, uh, nearly two meters across. Um, that's uh, getting on for six feet uh, or just or over six feet across, right? Some of these things are absolutely enormous. Okay, what's an alternative explanation then? Well, John Mackay, I believe, is, as you say, touched on it. I watched his interview that you did with him, and there certainly seems to be much more of a chemical process involved, uh, something which most geologists have never actually considered, because most geologists are taught from day one that limestone is a very slow deposition. They never think to question that. And also because in science, you are taught to specialize. You specialize on one particular aspect and you never really go outside of your academic field. Um, I want to give you an example of this. Uh, myself and John have noticed that there are extremely important connections between microbes, bacteria, plankton, you know, little sort of multicellular, oh, sorry, yeah, single cellular uh, microscopic creatures, enzymes, chemical processes and limestone formation, whether that's limestone like the Carbonif Carboniferous limestone, whether that's limestone um, like the uh, chalk, or whether it's limestone like the stalactites and stalagmites. Uh, and this is 
starting to reach the scientific papers, right? So we thought we need to do some investigation. Um, we're both geologists. We come from a geology background. We know wonderful stuff about geology. But what we don't know too much about is organic chemistry, which is where this chemical process comes in. And a few people have touched on it. So we went and sat down with a world expert in organic chemistry who said to us, I've never thought of looking at it that way before, and I wish I knew more about this, but I'm not a geologist. And so for the first time ever, a geologist and an organic chemist sat down and actually started to work together, right? <laughs> so yeah. um, you, will, you will never find the correct answer to anything unless you ask the correct questions. Just blindly going, well, we know that it's a shallow marine deposit, therefore I'm not going to ask the question, how did we get fossils? Uh, is not It just simply doesn't work. Okay, is there a way that we can explain it rapidly happening um, using a Noah's flood-like scenario? Well, this comes on to a different point, and I'll just briefly comment on to it. First of all, we know that the Hunstanton formation, we know that the chalk formation, we know that the limestone formations had to be buried quickly because they're full of fossils. The fossils all indicate flow. They all indicate rapid burial. Okay, how are we taught from day one that uh, rock formations are formed? The answer is from the bottom to the top. The bottom layer got there first, and the next layer settled on top, and the next layer, then the next layer, and the next layer, and the next layer, and so on and so forth. And there you get your wonderful geologic column from bottom to top um, with the label of millions of years. First proposed by a creationist, by the way, um, Nicholas Stino. The problem is everything we see in the world around us shows that rock layers don't form bottom to top. They form sideways. Because if you need to get sediment uh, to actually form a deposit, you need to erode that sediment from somewhere, you need to carry that sediment from somewhere, and you need to have moving sediment in order to deposit. All of that requires water which is flowing sideways, carrying that slurry of uh, stuff in it. Think about a beach, think about tides, think about rivers, think about deltas. Okay, scale that up, and you've got the perfect explanation for a stationary but moving sideways, so the particles are all suspended, moving at the same speed, carrying the limestone and the chalk along and depositing it as it's going, burying the creatures which are also traveling in the one direction. Now, there's a lot more research to do about that. There's a lot more research to do into the chemical aspect of limestone, um, but simply saying we know it's a slow, gradual deposition doesn't work. The fossils go to show that, uh, and if you want to try and match it up to any slow, gradual process, that is worlds away from anything that we see um, in the real world. Well, they, well, they have they have observed um, limestone uh, during volcanic eruptions as well, Joe. But mm -hmm. um, but going back to the limestone and the fossils, there are fossils that are found in limestone layers. And if we marry that up with that um, one to three centimetre per thousand year deposition rate, you find it's clearly impossible because there's a video on YouTube where they show a dead carcass of a whale. It was scavenged uh, um, within a year, I think. Uh, they came back a year later. They, they even found the worms were eating the bones. Yeah. I think that was uh, I a David Attenborough Blue Planet type, type of thing, wasn't it? Um, I think I know which one you're, you're talking about. And it, show, it shows you a year later and it's just it's just destroyed. Um, yeah. there's, there's no, I mean, there's no way you can get it. If you want to get, especially with that level of preservation, 
Um, where you know you have to bury a fossil quickly, deeply, without oxygen. If it's going to be a slow, gradual process, is even if you're talking twenty eight thousand um, years, just to bury the thing, not fossilize it, just to bury it, you just you're never going to get a fossil. It's a ludicrous result. Yeah, well, uh, the, the I I know a lot about the process. I mean, there's also um, fossilization in amber as well. Uh, that's, I guess, a different form of fossilization. We find different creatures fossilized in amber than we do, say, in the in the uh, sedimentary layers uh, across the world. But uh, standing, standing, you've got a question there. Yeah, I've got about uh, 300 of them. So, uh, Joe, I hope you've got time for about 10 hours of, of interview. I'm just kidding. Um, I, I got to say, that was a great response. I think that was the most detailed, informative yeah. response I've ever heard on, on that uh, topic and question. And you kind of answered two in one, essentially 10 in one. I know you touched on the chalk and the limestone, so that's awesome, since a lot of questions came in on those specific topics. It really demonstrates how readily we can have an answer to even the critics' best arguments and criticism. So I, I want to thank you for that, Joe. And although we've had a ton of questions come in, I'm going to go all the way back to the first question that came in over an hour ago from Ryan the Raptor guy. So thank you so much, Ryan, for your question. And his question is, for Joseph, what is your opinion on the flood slash, slash post-flood boundary? Okay. Um, a lot of creationists have done a lot of detailed research into this, um, and they've written many, many, many papers on it. Uh, and it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating study. It's where can we actually define flood and post-flood boundary? So which rocks are definitely flood deposited? Which rocks are post-flood deposited? Um, now, creationists have been looking for basically ever since sort of the, the modern creationist uh, phenomena has been around for the flood post-flood boundary. They still haven't got a definitive answer. There's strong opinions on both sides, but there isn't a definitive answer. Um, and I think the reason that there isn't a definitive answer is because there is no such thing as a, here's a nice straight line that goes across everything. Everything above this is post-flood. Everything underneath this is pre-flood. And that goes back to what I was alluding on earlier to the process of sideway deposition, right? Uh, the geologic column was first proposed by Nicholas Steno in the 16, mid-1600s, 1650s. He was a uh, Christian, a creationist who believed in the Bible, believed in the word of God, ended up actually becoming a monk. Uh, because of his uh, studies sort of le led him to Christ. And uh, he's sort of considered the founding father of paleontology because he was really the first person to say, hey, um, if you can find a creature in the rock, it probably is that creature just turned to stone as opposed to the Greeks spread down through ancient sort of uh, uh, through the Middle Ages in the in Europe, um, which claimed that it was either the Greek gods that put them there as a joke or Satan had put them there to trick us. Right. Uh, that was what they believed for, 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 for millennia, basically. And it wasn't until Nicholas Stino first proposed them as fossils that the science really took off. Right. So we have a lot to thank him for. And uh, he said, I can see these rock layers. It makes the most sense that the bottom one got laid down first and the top one got laid down last so that's how i'm going to do my research. right skip forward a few years and you get to james hutton who took that one step further and said well if the bottom layer got there first and the top layer got there last that means the bottom layer is the oldest the top layer is the youngest 
take it forward to Charles Lyell, um, who said, well, if the bottom layer is the oldest and the top layer is the youngest, then what we actually have here is a representation of not process, like Nicholas Stino first thought, but uh, actually time. We have oldest at the top, yeah, uh, sorry, oldest at the bottom, youngest at the top. Therefore, this is a process of time, which we can see time through the ages. Take that one step further, because what Charles Darwin did is build on Charles Lyell's principle and said, well, if the bottom layer is the oldest, the top layer is the youngest, that's a process of time. That means fossil creatures in the bottom layer evolved into the fossil creatures in the next layer and so on and so forth, all the way to the top. Do you see the line of succession here from a relatively innocent idea all the way through to the idea of millions of years evolution um, evidenced by the rocks and the fossils? All right, let's go back to square one, because Nicholas Dino had a brilliant idea, but ever since it was sort of hijacked by the uh, sort of sec people with a secular agenda, um, it's been used to promote this idea of millions of years that the bottom layer got there first, so on and so forth. So the whole stratigraphic geological column has been based around this principle of millions of years. And the problem is, uh, I mean, you've done the classroom experiment, haven't you? You've got a glass of water, you put muck and you put stones and you put little pebbles and you put big pebbles and you put big boulders and sand in it. You put the top, you shake it up like that and you watch it all settle bottom to top well that would be a wonderful example if the world was a glass of water but it's not the reality is in the real world that we see around us all sediments being carried all sediments being deposited are all being carried and deposited by water flowing sideways and if you go to creationresearch.net and click on the research page um, you'll find a whole host of experiments to do with flumes we've had uh, scientists from around the world and engineers and rocket scientists get together and help design this i was involved with some of the initial experiments back in 2018 uh, to show you how these rock layers form sideways now if this is a correct interpretation of the way that we see the world around us which we can observe uh, today because the brilliant thing about water is that it always behaves the same whether it's a little tiny bit of it or it's a huge amount of it it just happens at different scales right um so if this is the way that we observe the rocks today and the way that rock formations actually happen and get deposited then you can take it one step further and say what would we be looking for if we're looking for evidence of a flood because clearly the column which a lot of creationists use to try and put a line through to say this is all flood rock this is all post flood rock isn't going to work anymore because that entire column is based off of a evolutionary secular idea well what you need to look for are a few things like well how big is the deposit when we used the carboniferous deposit earlier it was buried by water it was definitely buried in a flood and it covered most of the world no arguing that is a flood deposit and it's noah's flood deposit it's a huge deposit all right well what about the jurassic sediments go all around the world absolutely huge same deposit full of fossils all with drowned dinosaurs in them um it's a flood deposit what about the chalk well you can go and travel from england and ireland across to normandy and france all the way down through africa and asia it even turns up uh the, the chalk at least turns up on the west coast of australia um all the same deposit all sitting on the same bed of sandstone uh it is all a flood deposit it's a massive deposit so you're looking things that have been buried in a flood so you're looking for evidence of a flood and you're also looking for evidence of large scale for post-flood deposits there's going to be a uh, way of actually viewing uh, and telling whether it's a post-flood is going to be a lot more localized it's going to be catastrophic 
because you need a catastrophe on on some scale to actually form a fossil. Um, so it's going to be catastrophic, but it's going to be a lot more smaller. It's going to be a lot more less sediment based. So the reality is the whole idea of the millions of years uh, based geologic column is going to be very hard to just draw a straight creationist line for it. So what you need to do is take each deposit individually, know what you're looking for when you're looking for evidence of a flood or not a flood, and actually make up uh, good judgments about it based on the evidence which you're looking at. So if you want to get the closest thing to a line, uh, you're kind of looking at end of Cretaceous, beginning of Cenozoic, somewhere in there. But there are some Cenozoic deposits, which I know many people like my Gord and myself believe are flood deposits. There are even some Cretaceous deposits, um, which I think could quite possibly be post-flood deposits. They're just too small to be on that larger scale. So I don't think you're going to find that there's a nice straight line which shows you everything, because the straight line itself is based on the idea of millions of years in evolution, which is what the stratigraphic column is actually based on. So there's a few thoughts. There isn't a one size fits all answer but hopefully that's a, th a few thoughts to help you sort of uh, take the investigation further oh that, that's that's great joe i i remember reading a um a conference paper that comes from 1933 where they mm -hmm. found bird tracks in a carboniferous layer mm -hmm. and because they couldn't explain it they just simply label it out of place fossil i yeah. always say it's not an out of place fossil it's the theory that's out of place, not the fossil. Let me give you another very quick example. Going back to um, uh, the, car the sorry, the Ordovician limestone, right, in Carthage in Tennessee. I've done a lot of research. I didn't include it in here. Um, but you can actually go and find fossil plants in the Ordovician limestone. I and mean, we've dug them up. We've shown them. We've uh, taken photographs. It's even got little fossil thorns on them. It's a little tiny fossil called Sordonia. Now, there's a problem with having Sordonia in the Ordovician limestone. According to the theory of evolution, the land plants like Sordonia weren't supposed to have evolved for another 40 million years. So he took these fossils to the world expert um, in the university in Canada on fossil thorns and Sordonia plants. And he looked at them and he said, yeah, no doubt about it. These are Sordonia. They're little fossil thorns. Um, but where did you find these? We well, said Carthage, Tennessee. He said... You can't of. We said, why? He said, because these are actually um, Devonian. They've got to be Devonian because the fossils are Devonian. Are you sure you haven't made a mistake? And we said, no, we had our, uh, you know, uh, Department of Geology, University of Tennessee uh, geologist with us who said that these are Ordovician rocks. And so we rang Bob up and we said, hey, are these definitely Ordovician rocks? He said, yeah, they're definitely Ordovician rocks. We said, well, we have a professor here who says they can't be. And so we took them back to the Department of Geology and said, look, here's these fossils. The professor says that these have got to be 40 million years uh, older. So they said, no, we haven't got it wrong at all. We haven't got it wrong in the slightest. We can't have got it wrong. These are definitely Ordovician. So you see, there's little discrepancies all the way throughout it. And it just shows where the bias lies um, when you're actually coming to dating these rocks. They don't look through all the evidence. Uh, by the way, the fact that we found fossil thorns down there doesn't matter how old you want to claim that they are. Um, what it means is that from a biblical perspective, those rocks were formed after Adam sinned. Because according to the Bible, thorns and thistles and prickles came onto the planet after Adam sinned and they were not there before. Um, so there's a little interesting thought to leave you with. Um. Joe, I think standing will allow me to ask this question. One of our uh, outstanding critics is a person by the name of Erica, 
aka Gutsy Gibbon. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this commonly asked question, what are the differences between man and the great apes? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, that's uh, we have two or three presentations on this, each of them an hour long. So I'm not going to cover everything in uh, in one simple uh, in one simple thing. Um, but first of all, let's just uh, uh, I mean the, the the one that's commonly proposed or the similarity that's commonly proposed is the DNA or the fact that our bone structure is very similar or brain or so on and so forth, right? Uh, and you can great, great big thick books on evolution. I studied evolution at um, university. And uh, the one thing that I noticed is that over and over and over again, they always talk about the similarities between us. What they never talk about is the differences. Yeah. Now, that to me is a, a very strange concept because if you're trying to prove that we evolved from something, surely you want to take the differences into account because it's the differences that determine how how far along the evolution line you are. And it's just something that is never really discussed, the differences between humans and apes. Um, the reason why is because the differences are extremely great. Uh, the whole 99% DNA thing is a, is a whole different topic to be dealt with. Um, and it's not 99% the same anyway. And that's a whole different thing. But just one thing to, to give you a, a little thought on about the 99% similar to ape DNA is... Um, if we genuinely are 99% or 98% similar DNA to chimpanzees, think of the geniusness of design that went into the DNA in order to make the vast amount of differences that we have between the two uh, creatures, humans and apes, in just 2% of DNA. I mean, that alone screams that there was a designer behind it um, because that's an incredible amount of information uh, to try and fit in 2% of the DNA. But um, there's a little uh, a little thought. But some of the differences include things like not just skeletal structure, so uh, jaw shape, pelvis shape, foot shape, so on and so forth. Uh, not just little differences like having the whites of the eyes, like being able to have emotions. Um, by the way, according to the Bible, we're made in the image of God. Oh. Specifically, we're made in the image of Jesus, who is the creator. John 1 says, all things were made by the word, who is Jesus Christ. And without the word, nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1.16 says that all things were made not only by Jesus Christ, but for Jesus Christ. And you find that one of the shortest verses in the Bible says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. We weep because we are made in the image of God, who did weep uh, when he came to the earth. By the way, monkeys don't cry. Neither do apes or gorillas or anything else, supposedly, are distant cousins. Um, they can't cry. Certainly not in the same way that we do, and certainly not with emotion. Uh, also, um, another thing, there, a few years back, uh, there was a baby who was born with essentially no heart or a very deformed heart. And so uh, in a spur sort of Mr. Panic, um, some surgeons actually tried to sew a, a gibbon's heart into the little baby's heart in the hope that it would actually continue to work. Uh, they should have known better because coursing through every single great apes or new world monkey or whatever, uh, whatever's veins is a whole group of acid. I think it's called silic acid, uh, which is thoroughly toxic to human beings. So there's another major change. Uh, also, how do humans reproduce? I won't go into detail, but um, to give you, a, uh, to put it into perspective, 
humans reproduce, the male has got a brilliant designed hydraulic system for actually transferring uh, sperm from him into the female. Uh, when it comes to great apes and all other monkeys, they don't actually have that. They have a baculum. A baculum or a penis bone is a sharp, hard bone which the male uses to penetrate the female. I mean, if you want to, and by the way, if you, as far back as you can go, uh, apes have always had this. So if you want to actually evolve into an ape that doesn't have that, then you need to have a major rewriting of information, which is something that we've never seen uh, at all. No new information arising from non-information source. Um, but that's verging onto the whole concept of design. So that's, uh, again, a whole different topic. We can discuss it further, but it's, uh, it is a, it is a, you could just go on and on and on and on. Oh, definitely. Great, great answer, by the way. Uh, I guess if, uh, the follow-up question uh, was, um, uh, what's the best way to determine whether or not a fossil or a bone is either human or ape when it comes to the fossil record? Okay. Um, there are very, very clear differences when it comes to the fossil record, uh, and you can simply you can simply look for the differences that are in modern apes. Um, one thing that we've found is every single supposed uh, fossil that is, uh, or every single fossil that is uh, part of our supposed timeline can either be shown to be 100% human or 100% ape. There's simply nothing in between. Um, so take, for instance, the famous Lucy fossil, Australopithecus afarensis. Uh, she is by every single definition an ape she has got a v, uh, she's got a v-shaped jaw a very sharp v-shaped jaw rather than a u-shaped jaw like we have she has a pelvis even though the first one was sort of reconstructed to uh, or whether it was deliberately reconstructed or misreconstructed to look um, like a, a, a bipedal or two-legged walker, uh, newer research, newer discoveries have found that she was absolutely bipedal. She walked on four legs. Um, the original Lucy skeleton had very little finger bones. Newer discoveries have shown that she has got finger bones and they have got extreme curvature on them, which means that she was a knuckle walker like a great ape. Um, every single definition we can find shows that she was 100% ape. So there are specific things like shape of the jaw, shape of the hip, shape of the knuckles, and so on and so forth, that you can absolutely determine whether it is an ape or not. Likewise for humans, U-shaped jaws, upright uh, pelvis, um, flat feet as well. I mean, the definition of apes is that they have four hands. They have four thumbs uh, that they use for hanging on. So uh, if you have a flat feet like a human, then uh, that's fantastic. You've got uh, evidence of a human if you find the foot bones. By the way, if you can do this, and hopefully you can all do that, because that means you're human. Um, if you can do all that with your fingers, apes cannot do that. But that means that we can actually hold a paintbrush in a way that an ape cannot and use our creative skills to paint. But then that shouldn't surprise you because uh, we're made in the image of God, who is the great designer. Therefore, we design. Uh, and we, of course, we can't create things the same that God can create because he's a lot more powerful than we do. But we create monkeys don't. So there are very specific differences between apes and humans, uh, particularly with their skeletal systems. So when you actually dig up ape fossils, they can all be shown to be 100 percent ape or 100 percent human. We have yet to find anything in between. Yeah, uh, George, if, if I could. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, go ahead. It, it's just, uh, I'm curious as to your thought, and you did kind of answer this, but we hear it over and over again, this yeah. assertion 
you know, and, and I hear it over and over again, made by the evolutionists. They assert that we are apes, humans are apes. And of course they are basing this on man-made classification systems and taxonomy and nested nested hierarchies, right? In, in morphology, anatomy. What are your thoughts? What's your opinion when you hear that assertion that, hey, you know, we are apes essentially? Yeah. Um, so a few a few thoughts which I'll just uh, I'll just throw out there. First of all, there's a scientific perspective, then there's a biblical perspective. The two go in hand in hand, by the way. Um, but if you want to get a biblical perspective, you'll find that we are created in the image of God, and no other animal is. Um, so certainly, whether or not that uh, you want to argue whether the image of God um, is uh, transferred physically, there is absolutely a spiritual aspect to it there. We are spiritual creatures, and so we are made in the image of God, which means we can experience things like emotion. We can experience a spiritual relationship with God. That's what we were created for. Uh, so there is, first of all, a major difference between us and apes, according to the Bible. Um, we are made in the image of God. Apes are not. Uh, and that's sort of transcends into the uh, enormous amount of um, uh, differences that you can find between the two as well. From a scientific perspective, it's interesting how much um, observation or how much opinion is flawed by uh, personal agenda or preconceived ideas uh, or presuppositions even. Now, I have a presupposition. I make no qualms about it. It's the Bible, right? But the secular humanist or the secular evolutionist who claims that he is neutral, that he doesn't have uh, an agenda, is actually lying to you. He does, absolutely. They all always come with the preconceived idea that evolution is true, that apes evolved into humans, that dinosaurs evolved into birds, and that there is no God, right? They're all preconceived ideas for which you go into research to do. And so the results that you get are going to be affected by your preconceived ideas, by your presuppositions, right? There's no getting around that. It's the same for me. It's the same for you. It's the same for everybody on the planet, right? Because we are human beings and happen to be made in the image of God. And that affects the way we do things, right? So what you'll find is that this assertion that humans are no more than apes or just, you know, slightly uh, larger, less hairy, overbrained apes um, is, in fact, a direct contradiction of the word of God. It's also a direct attack on the word of God. Uh, it's certainly not upheld scientifically. I mean, that whole assertion, we'll go into a bit deeper, the whole assertion of the uh, DNA, 98 or 99 percent similar, can be easily disproved. That's based on very, very old and very rather uh, outdated information. Um, but the, the, in, in a nutshell, the way that the the, uh, the information came about, that claim that we were 98% similar, is because they looked at certain aspects or certain structures of the way that our DNA is created. Right? By the way, we also share 50-odd percent with a uh, banana. Uh, it's about 70-odd percent with a worm and so on and so forth. Right? What you're actually looking at is you're looking at it from an evolutionary perspective to say, hey, we're really, really similar because X, Y, and Z. When the reality is, first of all, you need to look at the differences. Uh, we're not apes in the slightest. For the for the start, I'm standing in front of technology and talking to you and broadcasting it all over the world, and people are understanding that. Apes don't do that. Now, that may sound a bit cliche and a bit tongue-in-cheek, but follow the logic all the way through. Um, humans have got a spiritual aspect of to them, which is all the way through the history, uh, whether you believe in the true God or not. So there's definitely a spiritual aspect, which is, goes back to that may be made in the image of God. But um, scientifically, the way that you do it is you, uh, especially with the DNA, you're actually looking at similarities which are going to be similar. 
A better question would be, well, considering the differences, how great and amazing a designer this person had to have been to actually cram this amount of differences in such a small amount of DNA. Because the simplest little tiny difference can make completely different meanings. I mean, language is a fantastic example of that. And the classic example is God is now here. Now, you don't have to change a single letter. You don't have to switch a single letter about, add anything in. All you have to do is delete one space and you get God is nowhere. Um, a completely flipped meaning to just a tiniest percentage of uh, change. So just because we have similar DNA, even if we do have similar DNA, uh, doesn't mean that we're related to them in the slightest. Uh, Joe, um, with uh, there, there are a couple of theistic evolutionists in the chat I've, I've noticed, and um, I, mention, I mentioned those bird tracks in the Carboniferous layer that they um, classified as out-of-place fossils. Mm -hmm. uh, they, cl they claim that birds uh, evolved from dinosaurs, okay, because yeah. of feathers on Archaeopteryx, etc. Um, what would you say to a theistic evolutionist about God creating a process of evolutionary change that involved uh, deformations, mutations, disease, death? Would, mm -hmm. would, would, would a God really do that? Well, he, uh, he certainly could have done that. Um, there's, 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 uh, it's, it's a perfectly valid way of, uh, of God creating had he wanted to do that, but ultimately, um, so what about all the different ways that he could have done something? What I'm really interested in is how he did do it. I mean, a lot of theistic evolutionists get hung up over the, uh, the idea of, well, God could have done this. And the answer is absolutely he could have done. He's God. Of course he could have done it. The issue is not, could he have done this? The answer is, uh, or the issue is, what did he do? Um, you see, we have to start with the Bible as our authority, which, by the way, the doctrine of creation is directly connected to the legitimacy of Jesus Christ as our saviour. Um, let me show you why. Uh, the chronologies which you find and the genealogies, I mean, they're pretty boring. Uh, you know, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and then you fall asleep, right? But they're there for a very important reason. They're there to prove who Jesus Christ is. That's why the genealogies are there in uh, Matthew and Luke. They're there to prove who Jesus Christ is, that he is legitimately descended, not just from David, like the prophecy said, but also from Adam. Why is it so important that Jesus Christ is descended from Adam? Why is it so important that he's 100% God and 100% man? Well, the reason is that uh, if you read in the book of Leviticus, I think it's in chapter 13, it talks about the uh, responsibility or the commandment of a redeemer. If you're going to redeem somebody, if you're going to try and redeem somebody who's done wrong, uh, you have to be related to them. There's an order of kin. Right. So in order to actually redeem somebody from something they've done wrong, if you want to step in and take their place or take their punishment, you have to be related to them. That's a law of God. Uh, also, there's this issue of priesthood. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Right. Well, you can read in Ezra chapter three um, about I mean, Ezra's the priest who's coming back from captivity, uh, taking some of the children of Israel and setting up the priesthood in the promised land once again after they've been in captivity. Right. With the Babylonians. And it documents these three people who came back who should have been entitled to be a, a priesthood, should have been entitled to be a priest. The problem was they'd lost their grandfather's birth certificate. They had one missing link. 
and they could not actually prove who they were. They couldn't prove that they were legitimately from the line of priests. Therefore, the Bible says that they were cast out as defiled. Okay, um, one missing link is all it takes to destroy your legitimacy as a savior. One link is all it takes to destroy um, the whole process and the whole the whole point of uh, being able to be a kingsman redeemer. Okay, who is Jesus Christ? He is our redeemer and he is our great high priest. Therefore, his legitimacy as such is based directly upon the chronologies which are recorded in the Bible. That's why they're there, to prove that Jesus Christ is descended from Adam, because Romans says that one man brought sin and death into the world. Therefore, it takes one sinless man uh, to bring life. Uh, Paul's logic is simple. Adam brought death. Jesus brings life. That's why he's called the last Adam, right? The first Adam brought sin and death. The last Adam uh, is a life-saving being. It's based directly on the fact that Jesus Christ is descended from Adam. Now, if you want to argue that there are gaps in the genealogies and that the earth could be hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years old, or that Jesus uh, or that God chose, I think Ale uh, Alexander, Dennis Alexander's, he's a prominent theistic evolutionist. I think his favoured uh, story is that God chose a group of Neolithic farmers or cavemen, for want of a better word, and decided to have a relationship with them. Well, you can believe that if you want to, um, but it's certainly not biblical, and it certainly throws the legitimacy of Jesus Christ into question because you're saying that Jesus Christ is not descended from Adam the first created spirit who was made in the image of God you're actually saying that he's you know eventually you know evolved or devolved um from a group of cavemen or neolithic or even going further back ape-like creatures um you're throwing the legitimacy of Jesus Christ into question. Now, you can argue that that's what you want to believe. You can argue to do with science. Hopefully, tonight we've shown you some of the reasons why science certainly doesn't back up the idea of evolution or theistic evolution. But ultimately, the question is, um, so what if God could have created like that? He said exactly how he created, and it wasn't like that. So who are you to question God? And who are you to actually question the authority of Jesus Christ? Um I think I'm going to stick with the authority, which is the word of God. And also one final thing, and it's controversial and very, very bold and a bit blunt, I know, but it, you need to get this point across sometimes. When you stand in front of God on a, whole, a holy God on judgment day and he asks you, why did you call me a liar? How exactly are you going to respond? Amen. Amen. Very well said. Great answer. And great answers all around, especially to the previous question. Uh, Joe on apes and differences, similarities, very informative. And I wanted to point out too that even within those similar genetic sequences exist functional differences in terms of epigenetics yeah. and gene expression. So even in, in terms of the similarities themselves, there's a problem for the evolutionists. We also have Orphan genes, for example, which have never been shown empirically to arise through any series of mutations. Um, so I wanted to point that out because also you mentioned cavemen and the presuppositions of, of the evolutionists, because there's a question here that came on screen that I think is based on a false assumption that there have actually been evolutionary predictions when it comes to the hominin fossil record that have been confirmed. Because the question is, Given that the oldest hominin fossils look less human-like and more mm -hmm. ape-like, how do you explain this confirmation of evolutionary predictions? Wow. I think it comes down to, has this actually been confirmed? 
Yeah. Okay. So we found uh, we found several several ape fossils. What's interesting, or has always been interesting to me, is every time that a new ape fossil has been found, it's automatically assumed that it's in the lineage of apes to humans. Nobody ever stops to question. Well, what about apes to apes? Because we have modern apes here today. The old standard idea is you had a central ancestor which split off into apes and humans. Well, what about this ape succession? What's happened to all of their fossils? Um, every time a fossil is is uh, a fossil ape or supposed ape hominin is is found, it's automatically assumed to be in the human line. Um, so that's the first point. It shows you the bias that people will actually go out looking for stuff. Secondly, this question of um, does it show a line of succession does it show a line of progression well let's work backwards from humans shall we um let's go backwards to uh let's say um cro-magnon man uh, a bigger human being a bigger brain more sturdier more robust but absolutely definitely human uh let's go back to neanderthal again bigger brain sturdier robust we know a lot about neanderthals now we know a lot about their dna um and we actually can uh uh, do DNA sequencing on Neanderthals and find out how many of you are descended from a Neanderthal, and it's a surprisingly large amount, right? So go back even further. The Neanderthals were human, there's no doubt about it. Um, go back even further, and I suppose the next one you could go to is Homo erectus. Um, Homo erectus uh, dating methods are based off of sedimentology and also things like carbon dating and so on and so forth. They all have their various flaws, and that's a whole nother hour topic, but let's just have a look at him for a minute. He's a smaller human being he's got a bit of a smaller brain but the reality is if you look at his morphology he is not more ape-like in the slightest he is just a small slightly deformed human being then you have a major gap and all of a sudden your fossils you start finding are clearly apes what we've not found is a system i mean you know the famous image don't you of uh, you know ape going all the way up to human you know monkey sort of standing on the ground and going up through this it looks wonderful on paper but the fossil evidence simply doesn't support that again if you go through all of the evidence you look at all of the different supposed evidence for evolution you look through all the fossils you can categorize them all as 100% human you can categorize them all as 100% ape uh, there may be deformed apes there may be deformed humans in there but they're all absolutely genetically and scientifically either apes or humans what we haven't found is a succession between the two and what also is false is to say the further back you go humans get more and more ape-like they don't they stay humans and if anything they get more human because they have bigger brains they have more robust they have exactly what we would associate with humans today things like um art things like organized religion things like uh music or language or speech or a sense of politics or community as far back as you can go humans have always been humans that's a great response uh joe especially considering our model would have a post babel dis dispersal so you would have a lot of isolated people groups you may even have some isolated ape types and therefore inbreeding and mutation accumulation can lead to what you're talking about, deformities and uh, mutation related diseases. So yeah, it, it seems like a lot of evolutionists, they'll pick up these atypical bones, these anomalous bones, and they will hold it up like it's some big transition when in fact it's just pathology and disease. So I, that, that's and a really good yeah. point. 
that that's something that is is a problem in all of paleontology um a friend of mine who's not a christian or creationist by the way um but he's sort of sending shockwaves through the scientific community in many senses because what he's doing is uh taking things like dinosaurs and specifically ichthyosaurs and what he's doing is he's saying hang on a minute um oh, by the way when you when you're doing paleontology whatever, if you want a cheap and easy phd uh name a new species and describe a new species right it's the <laughs> easiest and greatest way of doing it so scientists are constantly looking especially students are constantly looking for new species right and so ichthyosaurs and dinosaurs have just got out of hand there were hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of new species and what he did is he went through specifically ichthyosaurs they're the sort of swimming dinosaurs they're called or they're not really dinosaurs sort of swimming marine reptiles he went through them all and said hang on a minute that's got arthritis that one's just a baby that one's slightly fat that one's got this bone disease that one's just so on and so forth and he actually condensed several hundred down to just 40 different species um and they're all shown to be the same thing it's the fact that they had just tiny little anomalies so that's another thing you also have to be wary of it's the the bias that scientists will come to because it is a you know describe a new species you can have it named after you even you know it's, it's, it's a, <laughs> There's a lot of money and uh, and uh, and fame that comes with it as well. Well, nobody remembers, you know, the tenth guy who found a T. Rex fossil. You know, they only remember no. the first guy. So first everybody one, wants yeah. to <laughs> any little uh, variation. They want to hopefully identify it as a new species. Um, and, I will say this um, real quick, George. I'll, I'll say this and then I'll yield the mic for a bit because I could probably sum up twenty questions that have come in into this one question as to what are your thoughts, Joe, of the whole dinosaur to bird idea? And more specifically, um, the claim that dinosaurs have feathers. Is there any validity to these ideas and, and claims? Okay, um, so it's sort of a two-part question. Let's deal with the dinosaurs to birds, first of all. Again, biblical perspective. Again, this is another whole presentation we have to do this again sometime because we've got uh, so many things we could say about it but um dinosaurs to bird biblical perspective uh, dinosaurs by their very definition are land animals um they walk on the land and they have legs that go straight down underneath them therefore according to the bible they were created on day six of creation birds by definition fly therefore uh, or at least are, are sort of uh, aerial birds aerial creatures therefore by definition they were created on day five of creation so created on separate days according to the bible so again make sure your bible is your authority make sure the word of god is your authority and uh, take a biblical perspective on it so according to the bible no absolutely birds are not um did not evolve from dinosaurs okay now look at a scientific perspective uh again there's been no such thing as a there are there have not been um any specific undisputed transitional forms found we can deal with uh, archaeopteryx for instance um it's completely a bird that was proved by the natural history museum in london a few years back when they actually took its brain out and studied its brain because the argument was well it's a bird that's halfway between a dinosaur and a bird because it has feathers but it also has teeth and it has claws on its wings and so on and so forth well none of those are unusual we have birds with all of them today uh, it's just all condensed into one with Archaeopteryx. But what they did is they actually extracted its brain um, out of the fossil itself and uh, ended up uh, basically showing this is a bird's brain. There's no doubt about it. But there's a lot more to creating a feather than just uh, or creating a bird than just sticking feathers on it. Right. You have to redesign the entire thing. So you start off with a 
dinosaur, which is a reptile, which is cold-blooded. I worked as a zookeeper for six years. It was a nightmare keeping our animals warm because well, I worked primarily as a reptile zookeeper. Um, they require a lot of heat. Right? So you've got to turn a cold-blooded animal into a warm-blooded animal that actually has got a way of um, getting enough oxygen around and producing its own heat so that the blood can keep flowing in order to get oxygen enough while it, uh, so it can actually fly. Uh, then you need a breathing system because our breathing system is no good. A, a, a reptile's breathing system is even worse. So you've actually got to get a breathing system which injects oxygen into the bloodstream both on the intake of air and on the outtake of air. So they have a, a special sort of double-barreled lung system. Uh, we, we breathe in and the oxygen goes to the blood, we breathe out, and we get rid of oxygen, and then we breathe in again, and so on and so forth. Whereas the double barrel system in the bird's lungs uh, is constantly delivering oxygen into the bloodstream. So very, very clever. Then you need to get rid of the bra uh, brain, a rep get rid of a reptile's brain, replace it um, with a bird's brain, which is a phenomenal thing. So in other words, in order to turn a reptile, like a dinosaur, into a bird, you need to have an incredible an incredible amount of new information uh, implanted. Now, one thing we've never seen is any kind of mutations creating new information. They can delete information, they can change around information that's already there, the vast majority of that uh, actually destroys a creature, but uh, they cannot make new information. That comes back onto the question of, well, what is a design? And how would you recognize whether something was designed? Now, the very definition of design is, uh, if an object or a, end, uh, a design or a, a, a something has got properties which do not come from the original material source, then that thing has been designed. So a very easy example is an aeroplane. What is an aeroplane? It's a 100% flying object made out of 100% non-flying parts. Each constituent material um, does not have the inherent uh, property of flight. However, the end product, the plane, has got properties that do not come from the material parts, therefore it's been designed, right? What is a car? A car is a 100% moving object made out of 100% non-moving parts. What is a computer code? Well, a computer code is ones and noughts, right? Um, by themselves, they have no inherent information. They certainly don't make a computer code unless somebody who is cleverer than the computer code, who existed before the computer code, um, and uh, is far smarter than the computer code, actually made those ones and noughts do what those ones and noughts do not do by themselves. You design a computer code, right? The end product, the code, has properties which do not exist in the materials that it is actually made of. All right, well, what is the uh, inside, uh, what would majorly need to change in order to turn uh, uh, dinosaurs into birds? Answer their DNA. Well, what is DNA? It's sugars, phosphates, carbons, and nitrogens. Each one of those things you probably ate for your breakfast, right? Um, on their own, they do not have the inherent um, property of DNA. They're just, you know, on their own, they, they, they just don't code for anything. However, DNA is perhaps the most complex coding system that the, we have ever come across, uh, ever. It comes nowhere you know our computer codes and our systems come nowhere close to dna in terms of um in terms of condensing the information the amount of information yet dna can also repair itself and dna can also replicate itself the end product has properties which do not come from the original source therefore dna is designed by definition by the way dna is actually designed to not evolve 
because the driving factor of evolution is supposedly uh, mutations. And then natural selection gets rid of the bad mutations and uh, leaves the good ones, right? But inside every single one of your cells, including inside every single living organism, um, your DNA has a special property, which means it uh, corrects mutations. Now, we live in a fallen world, so it doesn't always work brilliantly. But the reality is your DNA is designed to not evolve. So you've got yourself a major problem if you want to argue that evolution is actually the way forward. So um, there are just so many problems with uh, biologically with dinosaurs evolving into birds. So let's briefly deal with the fossils. Uh, more specifically, let's deal with the argument that uh, or the, the idea that we found dinosaurs with feathers. Now, some of them have been completely disputed. Um, they are either 100% birds. Uh, some of them have been disputed in the sense that they've been shown to be collagen fibers. And some of them do look very much like feathers and dinosaurs. Now, there's an old sort of uh, creationist, um, uh, I don't know what you call it, paradox or whatever, where they've uh, gone by definition, oh, bird, only birds have feathers. Therefore, if we find a dinosaur with feathers on it, it must be a 100% bird. Now, that's a circular line of reasoning, and I admit that, right? Uh, and there are many creationists out there who look at uh, fossils of dinosaurs with supposed feathers on them, and they say, oh, look, um, they've got feathers. Does that mean they believe they evolve from, uh, uh, they're evolving into birds? No, it doesn't. Does the presence of feathers in dinosaurs mean that dinosaurs are on their way to evolving into birds? No, it doesn't. Again, going back to the design point, going back to the DNA, going back to the major problems that there are with evolving. However, personally, I have yet to be convinced of any of the uh, supposed feathers on dinosaurs. Um, we have found many feathers in the fossil record. They are beautiful and brilliantly preserved uh, and uh, abundant as well. Um, in every single case of the dinosaurs, they are very, very badly preserved, and there are a 100 different other explanations for what they could actually be. Now, it's a controversial topic for creationists um, as regards to whether or not these are actually feathers or not. I'm of the opinion that they're not. Uh, I may well be convinced otherwise in the future as we do more research, but I think that uh, we are, there hasn't been enough research even on the evolutionists' part yet to actually determine whether they are feathers or not. But regardless of it, even if they do turn out to be feathers, and definitely feathers, um, which I'm sceptical about at the moment, but even if they do, does it prove the dinosaurs are evolving into birds? No, because you still need a mechanism for actually how they evolve. And that's something which has been disproven over and over again. Plus the biblical point that we know, according to the Bible, uh, birds were created a day before dinosaurs anyway. So um, there's another problem for you, especially theistic evolutionists, to get your head around. Again, why are you calling God a liar? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Joe. Uh, look, um, I'm just aware of the fact that we're almost nearly in, into two hours and you must be getting exhausted, mate. <laughs> it's, getting towards, it's heading towards midnight here where we are in the UK. So um, yeah. yeah, I've just got one question before we get to some super, super chat questions and we'll uh, finalize the um, presentation. Um, I, I with birds, um, there's also the uh, navigation part. You know, how do you evolve? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, but uh, what what are your thoughts on the select few so-called trans transitional fossils the proponents of evolution point to? Uh, I'm referring to Archaeopteryx, Tiktaalik, and the mammal-like reptiles. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, um, well, the mammal-like the mammal-like reptiles are interesting, um, as are as are many of the other transitional fossils. Um, again, what we've not found is a creature. It depends on what your definition of a transitional fossil is. At the end of the day, um, if you believe already believe in evolution then you're going to believe that such things can exist and so you're going to look for evidence of them if you believe in creation then you believe that god designed creatures with a certain amount of diversity a limited diversity but they're going to be able to diverse into that what we haven't found is a creature which is specifically halfway to evolving into a different creature so tiktalic is supposedly a fish on the way to evolving legs right um it's not we found fish similar to them alive today coelacanth is a classic example um but it's just a, a very special design type of fin we haven't found a fish that has got legs sticking out and it's able to breathe on the air or so on and so forth right uh archaeopteryx as i say it's been shown to be a bird by the brain it's 100 bird brained um quite literally uh so uh, there's there's no difference there and again we've got birds alive today which have got teeth and claws uh in the wings it's we haven't got them together necessarily but that doesn't mean it didn't exist in the past um the the real problem with all of this goes back to really um what is your what, what, how, is, how are these creatures actually going to evolve uh, or how did they evolve because again going back to the point that i made with design by definition dna and everything inside it is not only designed but it's also designed to not evolve um so you've got to get past that issue as well so again i mean transitional fossils is, a, is again another topic you could go on for hours and hours about but it really comes down to ulti i mean ultimately this whole thing this whole uh, issue comes down to who is your authority if your authority is the fallible word of man, then you're going to be willing to chop and change your uh, opinions and investigations to suit your preconceived ideas, uh, which are preconceived, by the way, on the idea that God doesn't exist. If your authority is the word of God, or at least if you claim it is, then you need to take him as his word that what he said was actually true. Because one thing you'll find is that there are many ideas theories, opinions, hypotheses that contradict every single part of the Bible, but the facts never actually do. Okay, great response, uh, Indiana Joe. Yeah, we're going to end it with this one because you have been so generous uh, with your time. This has been amazing. I'll say uh, people are loving you. We've got about 10,000 questions. So um, what we'll do is I'm going to save all the questions, guys, and um, for the day that we can have uh, Joe on again because it's been so awesome and you are an encyclopedia of, of information. So God bless you. You have been such a huge help. Um, this we're going to do a special Q and A session, just you know, a presentation, just a just a special Q and A session. That'd be good. Awesome, that would be an honor. We would be more than happy. You're you're such a blessing. So you know, God bless you for that. This one uh, came in the form of a super chat. So they're they're paying a little bit of money to ask the question. So what we'll do is is we'll end it with this last one, and we'll call it a night, guys. Two hours has flown by. This has been so fun. Question is from Sigifredo Sarabia. Hope I said that right. Uh, thank you for the super chat. If global flood, why one Grand Canyon versus other regions? So in other words, why not many Grand Canyons? Mm -hmm. well, okay, um, very, very briefly. Uh, first of all, um, you've got to get, because this is something I got confused about growing up. Um, we believe that the Grand Canyon layers, the rock layers were formed by Noah's flood. By the way, the rock layers extend way beyond the Grand Canyon. They go all over the USA. The similar layers are all around the world, right? Um, there's sort of debate between creationists whether it was the retreating flood water or whether it was burst ice banks or whatever carving out the Grand Canyon. But the reality is it's all connected with Noah's flood and it's 
greatly affected the way that the Earth's um, morphology and the way that the Earth's shape uh, actually looks. Now, Grand Canyons, yes, there is uh, Grand Canyon, but the Grand Canyon in the USA is not the largest canyon on planet Earth. Um, there's many, many others. I mentioned one brief canyon uh, in the Blue Mountains in, in Oz, the Great Big Valley. Um, you can find, it's not, I'm not sure whether it's the same size as the Grand Canyon or not, but it's certainly absolutely massive. And you'll find there are canyons all over the world. And they all were carved out by water and it was all very 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 quick you can see that everywhere even in the uk we have much smaller canyons but you can see how retreating flood waters and burst ice banks and stuff has carved out the surface of the earth so again it comes back down to that uh, i mean you can you can find again if you go to creationresearch.net and click on the q a you'll find a whole host of geology information and stuff that you can find there um but there are plenty of canyons all over the world and they all have wonderful evidence of noah's flood and and jo joseph there's also a canyon on Mars, which is much, much bigger than the one on mm -hmm. Earth. And, the, and there's very little water there. <laughs> so. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was awesome. Great answer. Great way to end it. Thanks so much for the support. Uh, everybody's saying great stream, great presentation. So, and it, it, it's all because you were um, generous enough with, with your time, Joseph. So I appreciate right. it. Thank you, George. Uh, this was so rewatchable. Joe, any, any last words before we shut it down for the night? Oh, you, were, you, you were great, Joseph. Thank you very much. God bless you, mate. And, and keep safe. Thank you very much. Yeah, we're sort of in, a, in the middle of another lockdown here. A um, couple of reminders. Number one, make sure that the authority is the word of God and don't call him a liar. Uh, and do not add to his words either. That's a Bible verse from um, uh, from from the Psalms. Do not add to his words, uh, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And remember, when it comes to geology and fossils, nothing to do with time, everything to do with process. Amen. Well said. Well said. Great way to end it. So God bless you and God bless God everybody bless. in the chat. God bless. <laughs>